I grew up very near the railroad, and in fact, we were those kids out there putting pennies and standing way too close to the rails, you know, and always getting in trouble for being on the tracks. And um, we knew exactly when the train was coming and would run down there and just wave. Writer Jill McCorkle is a born storyteller. Her novels and short stories bring irony, humor, and depth to everyday people caught up in complicated lives. And you don't have to read far into her work to learn that she's a dog lover and a keen observer of the South. Welcome to 27 Views, the podcast where we talk to some of our favorite writers in the American South. Here we explore what it means to live in, write about, and wander this corner of the country. From the north banks of the Eno River in Hillsborough, North Carolina, I'm your host, Elizabeth Woodman. Today we visit with writer Jill McCorkle. Her husband, documentarian Tom Rankin, occasionally likes to hunt. Jill is neither a hunter nor a gun enthusiast, but she accompanies him one afternoon. To her surprise, she discovers that the world of hunting isn't exactly how she'd imagined it. Plus, it offers up a bounty of material, the very life force of any storyteller. Jill hung up her orange hat one morning and came to our Hillsborough studio to talk about hunting and the writing life, and to read excerpts from her story, Dog Hunting, which appears in the book 27 Views of Hillsborough, a southern town in prose and poetry. A couple of years ago, my husband Tom and I were out walking in the woods. He had his gun in case he saw something he thought he should shoot. I didn't have a gun, which is a good thing, as I don't know the first thing about them. So I was perfectly happy to walk around, listening to the birds and then the wind, while momentarily rested and perched way up a tree in a deer stand. There wasn't a whole lot happening that day as far as I could tell, except that it was a really nice time to be outside. After the quiet time, we walked around again, only to find one of our neighbors propped against a tree. He was wearing camouflage and blended right in except for the orange cap, which is what startled us into seeing him. We stopped and talked for a little while as he had no trouble talking. He was very skilled at hunting and telling a story, and glimpsing his verbal talent affirmed to me that this was indeed a good way to spend my afternoon. I can do this, I was thinking. I can hunt words, catch, skin, and string them into nice, long, colorful sentences. What I wanted to know from Jill was what it was like to be a bystander in the world of hunting and to stumble upon a well-seasoned storyteller, a sort of kindred spirit, which leads her to draw a really interesting parallel between hunting and writing. I'm always on the lookout for um, the way sentences are put together, um, the language that an individual brings, you know, that make, I mean, we each have our own language, I think. 
I grew up with a lot of old relatives who talked all the time. And um, I sometimes got tired of hearing what they were telling me to do, (laughs) but I never got tired of hearing the language and hearing them talk. And so for me, often as a writer, it's about trying to recreate the sound of someone's language, either people I know very well or those people I just happen to overhear out in public. I found it interesting that you uh, express a level of discomfort, but then you run into a very verbal hunter who is talking to you and telling you stories, and then there's a shift. You think, oh, I can do this. Yeah, and, and also I think it, it's it's when worlds collide because I, I think I spent a lot of years having an impression of all those people who were out in the woods with the gun. And, and then I married this really wonderful, intelligent, artistic man who sometimes is one of those men out in the woods with a gun. And it made me rethink who these individuals were, you know, and you can no longer just quickly form a group in your mind and assume you know everything there is to know. And so, you know, suddenly here's this person slouched against a tree doing something I would absolutely never in my life be doing. <laughs> and yet I was fascinated by his his great ability to tell a story. It seemed this was all we would find that quiet afternoon, but we kept walking off toward the river, still hoping we might see something Tom might want to shoot. I have to confess here that I'm someone who has no experience whatsoever with hunting and was surprised that I was even out there at all. But I was, and also was relieved that I didn't witness Bambi on the run or Thumper shivering in the bushes. Let's just say I was not prepared to haul something dead or dying. It's kind of a strange thing, um, the setting where hunting takes place, because it's the natural world and it's incredibly beautiful. And, you know, where we live, there, you know, I can lean out the door and hear the wind and hear the river, but you also hear the occasional sound of a gun. And um, so it really is, you know, something that introduces death, or, or you might call it... Um, the cycle of life, you know, life cycle, but um, there's something, I, I mean, I, I flinch when I think of guns because I associate guns with a kind of violence against nature. And, and I am not someone who wears orange well, but you better believe I do wear a lot of orange during the winter. <laughs> and so as a non-hunter with a hunter husband... Are you feeling more comfortable in that setting, or is is there still that tension that you feel? Well, I feel comfortable because I I feel I really admire and respect 
that my husband is someone who wastes not a thing. You know, it's very much, I mean, if he shoots a deer, he does all the work and it's processed and everything goes to use. And I do admire that, you know, and I I do partake of his wonderful chili he makes. Um, but I also know that if, if it were up to me, you know, I would be eating what I could pull off of a tree or the occasional fish I might be able to catch because I don't even think I could, you know, do a chicken plucking. I've thought about this, you know. <laughs> and my grandmother, of course, had wonderful stories about how by the time she had caught one, wrung its neck, bled it, scalded it, plucked it, cut it up, fried it, um, that she could not eat chicken. In your fiction, I've noticed that there's often a moment, or many moments, where the characters are put into a situation that's uncomfortable for them, and it leads to a sense of discovery. Yeah, and, and I think that's what life is. You know, I mean, I think to imagine that one day you're going to hit easy street and just sail smoothly forevermore, um, though that might be a dream, is a pretty foolish one. I think life is just a series of knots and untying those knots. There, It's just constant problem solving. And I think as a writer, that's what you do on the page. You, you're introduced to a situation or or a complex character, and then the whole challenge is to figure it out and undo the knot and somehow identify and accept it as it is. I, as a writer, I feel like I write the same story over and over again. I feel like much of my work deals with people coming to that place we were just talking about, some difficult moment that makes them step back and look at the big picture and admit or accept failures, regrets, whatever the roadblock is, and finding a way to get beyond it. So I think I write a lot about second chances or what might seem a resurrection of sorts. I really think failure is one of our very best friends and teachers. And I think what our society has done of late to to diminish, to take failure away from people is a huge mistake because I think it's important to that we see failure and that we see the scars. A lot of times, you know, I will have that character struggling on the page, thinking, okay, that's it, it's over. There's nothing for me. Um, only to then have them find that little thing that makes a difference. What led you to be a writer? It was a good way to excuse spending time all by yourself, which I really loved to do as a kid. And and I still relish it as a kind of grown-up version of... Um, make-believe, just the games you play as a child. What I did see was a little pack of beagles with wires sticking up out of their collars like they were on remote. They came out of nowhere, wiggling wind-up toys with wagging tails, snorting and sniffing the ground. 
There were three brown and whites about the same size. Let's call them Larry, Curly, and Moe, who were stumbling and rolling all over each other. And then there was the leader, a black and white beagle who looked just like her name, Dottie. And how did we know her name? Because some man was yelling, Dottie? Dottie? At first I thought the voice was coming from one of the trio and that we had stumbled on the famous talking dog. And if a dog talks out in the woods and there's no one to hear him, sort of thing. But then we glimpsed a man, also wearing orange, way off in the distance, and it was clear that he was a little upset with Dottie. She had stopped doing what she was supposed to be doing. She was a working girl, out to survey the territory, and the little wire in her collar was her global positioning system. I had never heard of dog hunting, but this was what I was witnessing. It isn't as bad as it sounds. It's a sport where the dog is co-participant with man, kind of like Frisbee. The object of this sport is for the dogs to sniff out and run deer up and out to where their master men can rise up from where they've been slouched against the trunk of a tree or hiding up in its branches, maybe drinking and talking a little, aim and shoot. Clearly, Dottie was tired and taking a little break. The man kept on bellowing her name, but she didn't seem to give a damn what he said or what he wanted. She and Larry, Curly, and Moe were deep in the woods, the Eno River within view, and she was far more interested in what the boys were doing, which was sniffing us, peeing, and humping one another. Dottie? Dottie? Go, girl! Dottie did not give one single damn. I think if a deer had walked right up, Dottie would have looked the other way. She was on strike, and who could blame her? It was a scene right out of Lady Chatterley's lover. Dottie and her handsome suitors deep in the woods, the river rushing, the wind blowing. It was idyllic, not a deer in sight. It's a dog sport. It's what they do when they stop listening to people and get together in the middle of the woods. What was it about Dottie that so intrigued you? <laughs> well, I, I tend to, what's the word, anthropomorphize. I never can Anthropomorphize. Say. Anthropomorphize, yes. Um, I tend to always do that anyway with all animals, I think. Um, so, so, you know, I saw Dottie as a, a little free spirit out there in the woods, and I just loved that she was temporarily bucking the system and not doing as she was told. You know, she was following her heart um, instead of probably her head uh, telling her that she was likely going to be punished for not following the rules. But in the moment, she didn't care. So there was something kind of romantic about Dottie. Jill grew up in Lumberton, a town in eastern North Carolina. As a young adult, She moved to Boston. She's been back for a while now and living in Hillsborough. I was curious to know after her years of urban life how she's adjusting to this small southern town. There's just a wonderful community spirit. And um, Tom often says it's a great place because you can buy your 
your cappuccino or whatever right next door to where a deer is being weighed, you know, for the big doe contest. That's starting to change because now where the where they would weigh them um, has been sold. But but I think still there are just many places in this community where those worlds bump up against each other. Oh, do you hear that? That's the 11 a.m. train to Charlotte. What would Hillsborough be without its train whistles? You know, when I hear the train whistle, it um, it's like um, it's like time travel because I grew up very near the railroad, and in fact, we were those kids out there putting pennies and standing way too close to the rails, you know, and always getting in trouble for being on the tracks. And um, I just. You know, so my childhood was spent, you know, we we knew exactly when the train was coming and would run down there and just wave to these old toothless men leaning out. (laughs) Um, So for me, it's, it's just kind of wonderful. It's got a timeless sound and, um, you know, moving on. We've been visiting with novelist Jill McCorkle. She talked about and read from her story, Dog Hunting, which was featured in 27 Views of Hillsborough, a small southern town in prose and poetry, published by Eno Publishers. Jill's career as a writer is the stuff of legend. Her first two novels, The Cheerleader and July 7th, were published on the same day in 1984, when she was in her mid-20s. A New York Times reviewer wrote, One suspects that the author of The Cheerleader is a born novelist. With July 7th, she is also a full-grown one. Jill has published 12 novels and short story collections, most recently the highly acclaimed novel Hieroglyphics. She has received numerous awards and in 2018 was inducted into the North Carolina Literary Hall of Fame. Some of her stories have been adapted into the musical review Good Old Girls, which she periodically appears in with fellow writer Lee Smith and musicians Matresa Berg and Marshall Chapman. Her work is also included in Eno's anthology, The Carolina Table, North Carolina Writers on Food. Jill and her husband Tom Rankin recently moved from their goat farm in rural Orange County into the hustle and train whistle bustle of Hillsborough. They just published a limited edition book entitled Goat Light, a collection of photographs of and written reflections on the goat farm where they lived for many years. If you would like to hear Jill read her entire story, Dog Hunting, you can find a link to it on our website at enopublishers.org. That's enopublishers with an S at the end. Org. 27 Views is hosted and produced by Elizabeth Woodman. That's me. Editing and mixing supervision by Mark Maximoff. Executive producers are Elizabeth Benfi and Ezra Rawich. Special thanks to Tom Rankin and to Dwight Clayton and his pack of very well-behaved beagles. Production assistant for this episode is Lulu Hallman. Music for this episode is from the composition Front Porch Etude No. 2, 
from Heartland Nights. It's available on Soundstripe, and you can find a link to it on our website. Special effects are from Epidemic Sound. 27 Views theme music is from the composition called Quarry in the Meadow, written and performed by Bruno Lechron. Please join us next time for more stories of the South on the 27 Views podcast. Thank you.